Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. Well, hey, how are we doing today? Good to see you. My name's Charlie. I'm the senior pastor. If we haven't met, come and find me after the service. Today, we start a brand new study. It's our fall study. It's the book of Titus, three chapters. So probably the next, I don't know, nine, ten months, it's going to be a great journey. You'll be in it for the next eight weeks. It's going to be great. But before we get into the book of Titus, we come here every Sunday and we say it every Sunday. And I think repetition is something that's sorely missed in most of our lives because repetition develops good habits and they remind us what's really important. And so we come each Sunday and we say these things. We say that we live in a culture that's very consumeristic and very critical and that God's invited us into this space this morning to teach us about who he is and about how we'd be more like him. And so we're going to come here this morning and we're going to open the word and we're going to put aside the criticalness of culture and we're going to say, God, what do you have for me this morning? And we're going to do that by praying up front. We're going to ask the Holy Spirit to guide us this morning as he leads us and teaches us. And I ask that you pray for me as I open the word and talk about the goodness of God in ways that maybe we've seen and that maybe we haven't because today we're here because God is growing us. Today we're here because God is making us look more like Jesus. Today we're here because we celebrate the change that comes from a God who can change all things and make them new. So let's pray. God, I'm thankful to be here this morning that we can come to this space and put aside the hecticness and the chaos and the busyness and the anxiety of life for an hour and change and, and refocus on what we should focus on in the first place and what's good. As we open your word today, Holy Spirit, lead us. Holy Spirit, speak to our spirit and, and show us not just the goodness, but the value of God in our world and how you're changing us. If you're comfortable, and ask you just take just a couple seconds and say a silent prayer and, and, and ask the Spirit of God to speak to your spirit through the scriptures this morning. I ask that you pray for me, that God might use the preparation and uh, the, the text today, just to teach people, to show people more of his goodness that we see all of him this morning as we open the text. Pray these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. If you've got a Bible, you can go to Titus. We're going to be in chapter 1, verse 1, always the best place to start when you begin a new book study. This year is an interesting one for me. This year is my 20-year high school reunion. I know, and you're saying, no way. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and it's been interesting as I've talked about it and thought through it and talked to some people who I went to high school with, and they say, hey, first of all, are we going to have one? I don't know. And secondly, are you going to go? And I don't know either. It, it got me thinking about the different kinds of people that go to high school reunions. There's two. There's the one that never wanted to leave high school, right? And so they go back to the glory days. And there's the other one that wants to show all the people who never wanted to leave that they're a better person than the people who never wanted to leave, right? 
And I don't know which one I am. I probably fall somewhere in the middle. But it got me thinking about this idea that Titus talks about, about the nature of change in our world. I think we want to believe societally, culturally, we want to believe change is possible. We, we teach to our kids every night. I put my kid to bed and I say, you can pick two books. And she says, okay. And lately she's gone back to this book that we used to read when she was little called Sloths Don't Run. I don't know if you know this book, but it's all, I know, oh, it's adorable. It's all about this sloth who, guess what? Doesn't run, but, but he wants to. And there's this great rainforest race. I know it's just captivating you from the beginning. And long story short, at the end of it, what you find is that he works really hard and he, and he runs in this race. And I, I remember the first time I read this book, I'm reading to my daughter, and I'm thinking, they're going to make this sloth win. I know it, you know? And I love this book because it gets dead last by a day and a half, <laughs> you know? It's fantastic. I was like, that's right. We're teaching them that, that you can be what you want to be, but you can't, you know, the miraculous doesn't happen often. And so we're flipping through this page, and it's teaching every book, it seems like. This is a microcosm of other one. It teaches my kid and all kids about the, necess- the, necess- the necessity of, the power of, the value of change. You can be something different. You can be something that people say you can't if you work hard and do hard. We believe in the value of change. But, but then we don't at the same time. Because we live in a world that is cancel culture forward. Look, let's just talk about the new Jeopardy host, right? Where you are who you were in 2004, and it doesn't matter where you've come now, you're still that, you know? We live in a world that seemingly values change, but at the same time doesn't. And we follow a God that says his whole purpose of coming down to us was to change us into something that is better. We live in this tension of, I think we believe in change, but do we actually change as hard? Titus is a book all about how God changes us so that our world might change too. And so when we get into the first four verses today, what we're going to talk about is why we need to change. We're going to talk about how God changes people, and we're going to talk about what the purpose of it is. It's all in the first four verses. But to do that, you got to know a little bit about Titus in the first place. It's interesting when you look at the letters that Paul wrote to the different churches. you got to know who Titus was. Titus was a Greek follower of Jesus, so he was a Gentile, was not a Jew, which made it an uphill battle from the get-go, and he became very, 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 very close with Paul. He followed Paul on missionary journeys. Paul led Titus to Jesus in the first place. He accompanied Paul and Barnabas on their mission to Jerusalem. He was his representative to the church in Corinth. There's actually a letter, and most people say it's it's the letter of 2 Corinthians in in chapters 10 through 13. It's known as the weeping letters. Because when Paul writes about it, he says, I I am literally crying as I'm writing this because I know this is difficult to hear. Titus was the one that delivered that letter to the people. Titus was close with Paul. And then Paul looks at Titus and says, you're going to go to this island called Crete, and you're just going to stay there without me. Crete Crete was a hard place to live if you were a Christian in the first century world. Homer talks about it in his letters. He said that Crete is the island of a hundred cities. You had all these different communities, and interspersed in those different communities was people that followed Jesus. But they were not organized and usually pretty well infiltrated by society. And you know that the call of Paul to Titus to organize the churches in Crete was a hard thing because Paul had a format to writing his letters. He would say at the very beginning, Hey guys, I'm Paul. And then he'd define himself in one of two ways we're going to talk about in a second. And then he'd say, at some point down the list, this is who it's to. 
Hey guys, I'm Paul. This is Who It's To. And usually the number of words in between there kind of showed you behind the scenes how serious this place was. For example, when Paul talks about like his, his opus, his, his letter to the Romans, really hard situation culturally, probably in the New Testament, one of the harder letters written to the tensions that were developing between different kinds of followers of Jesus. And from when he says, this is to the church here, to this is who I'm writing to, I'm Paul, this is who I'm writing to, there's 71 words between them, right? You get to different letters, for example, First and Second Corinthians, there's 11 words and 10 words between when Paul says, I'm Paul, this is who the letter is to. Philippians is a really great book. Paul's in a very good mood when he writes it. He says, this book is a book of joy, I love you. There's five words between I'm Paul, this is to Philippi, you know? When you get to the book of Titus, there's 46 words between when he says, I'm Paul and this is a Titus. And he's going to outline, this is the purpose for why I'm writing. And it's a tough one. Because at the time, Crete wasn't just a, 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 a place where the church was segmented throughout all these different communities. It was a haven for false teachings. In the first century world, they'll still say it today, Cretans would say that Zeus, the Olympic god of all gods, was born on their island. And so what you did was you had all these filtrations of false teaching that, that impacted how people saw God and how people saw Jesus. You fought an uphill battle of a culture that was against you from the get-go. Christian culture was notorious in the ancient world for being treacherous and being greedy. Most of the men on that island were mercenary soldiers that Rome sent there kind of to, to hang out for a little while. It was not an easy place to talk about the gospel. Crete was not a flower mound, everybody. And Paul says to Titus, go and stay without me. And, and he says, you're going to organize this church and you're going to talk about how Jesus changes people. Communities, churches, families. Those are your three chapters. And this is the good that they're going to see from it. Literally, there's a word in the Greek. You know you have to be really bad when you get your own word. It's called a kretso, meaning literally to lie. So if you were a liar, they called you a Cretan in the first century world. This was a bad place to be. And to this... Paul sends Titus and he says, go and organize my church. And he talks about the value and the role and the power of transformation. And he starts in verse one from Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. When Paul wrote his letters, he had two different ways that he opened them for the most part. And you see both of them here. He would either say, I'm Paul, an apostle of Jesus. And, and he did that in over half his letters because he wanted to show people that what he said next wasn't his words, but were given to him from God. It, it showed correlation to authority. Listen to me, not because I'm a great dude, but because I got this word directly from God. You see that in Galatians most specifically. And he goes on in the first chapter to argue that I got these words not from somebody, from somebody who knew Jesus, but literally he pulled me off my donkey. He blinded me and said, this is what I want you to say. This is the gospel. In this one, he starts by saying, Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And in just about half his letters, he starts by talking about how he's a slave. And for a second, I just want to talk about why he does this. I think our culture, two things when we hear the word slave. One is it's not a positive thing. That's okay. Uh, two is when we hear the word slave, we have a harder time with it because we don't value dependence as Americans. We value independence as Americans. And so the idea that Paul would say he's a slave of something, he's under someone else, he's dependent on something else, that he's not the chief end-all, be-all, independent, ideal man is problematic for us. I think 
this is the sin of all sins. This is the cause of a lot of divisions is our autonomy over the good of others. One writer would say autonomy upends God's created order by making creation about man instead of about God. And so sometimes we have to start with the ideal that when God calls us into community, when God calls us to follow Jesus, it's a reminder that we are dependent on, not independent from God. And as a first, as a, as a, as a 2021 American, I need that reminder often because I think autonomy, absolute autonomy is a lie because we depend on way more than we realize. I have a friend of mine named Ian Cook, and he would always tell me before I was married, he said, Charlie, I am the head of my household, but my wife is the neck that turns the head, you know? <laughs> so even when we believe we're in charge, are we really in charge? How did you get here this morning if you want to break down autonomy on a micro level? You got up because an alarm woke you up or a child woke you up. You got dressed. Somebody else made your clothes. You got food that you bought from Tom Thumb that somebody else put there. And you got in a car that somebody else made. You getting here this morning was by and large not only because of you, right? We want to believe in the lie of autonomy. And here's what we need to know. The gospel never calls us into autonomy. It calls us into dependence on God. Paul at the beginning says, know this about me, that I am a slave to something bigger and better than me. And why that's important is because if we're going to talk about transformation, we have to start with the idea that there's something bigger and better that's changing us. You have to start with the fragility of self so you don't fall into the tyranny of self that absolute autonomy brings. I think when we talk about why Paul starts his letters by I am a slave, he reminds his people that we are being formed and shaped and changed because we aren't enough in and of ourselves. Slave in the first century world, in Paul's world, and most of the Old Testament, when it talks about slaves to God, was a beautiful designation of honor, not something that they shied away from. I think as a as a church in 2021 in America, we need to be reminded that we are slaves to Jesus in a beautiful way that simply says we come under his command, his rule, and reign. Look what Andy Stanley says about autonomy. He says, autonomy is a myth, it's a trap, it's an unworthy goal, it'll leave you isolated and vulnerable. We need to understand that, that Paul begins by saying, I am a slave because I'm under the authority of somebody else. And as a church, we are slaves of, under the authority of, the goodness of God. Because absolute freedom is a lie. And we were supposed to have freedom within the context and the character of God's goodness from the garden on. And so we come here today saying, like we said, like we prayed for, that we are being changed. We are being transformed because there's something bigger and better that I say I am under. So Paul says, a slave of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then he continues. He says, To further the faith of God's chosen ones and the knowledge of the truth that is keeping with godliness. And what you see in the latter half of verse 1 is what we would call the trifecta of transformation or the holy trinity of transformation. You can get as alliterative and Jesus-y as you want with the phrasing, Right? But there's three components here that are often in how Paul talks about how he is being changed. And it's to further the faith of God's chosen ones and the knowledge of the truth that is in keeping with godliness. Those three components, faith, knowledge, and godliness. 
That word there, two further, two in the Greek, kata, literally just means this is my purpose for writing. It's not just two, it's this is my purpose. I am writing to further these three things, your faith, your knowledge in the truth, and your godliness. And these three things together come and make up what growth or transformation in the Christian life looks like. The, the sequence of these three significant terms Paul uses in this verse suggests a pattern of true Christian growth. Saving faith that opens one's eyes to knowledge of the truth should result in a transformed life characterized by godliness. So let's talk about the three. So first he starts with, I want to further, I want to increase your faith. And that's where we begin. That's why when Jesus is talking in Matthew 5, he says, the beginning of following me is recognizing that you are not enough and God is poor in spirit that you need something bigger and better than you, that I need to believe that God brings about a different kind of world than the one I bring about when I live out my ways. And, and so we have this idea of faith be, is believing in something that's, that's better, that maybe we can't even see, you know? And here's what I love about faith. faith is be- unadulterated faith is beautiful. I, I, I love picking my kid up from, day, from daycare. And it's not because I want to be a good father. It's not because I'm trying to serve my wife. If she asks, I'm saying those things. I like to pick my kid up from daycare because it is the biggest confidence boost I get in my week. I I pick my child up at five-ish from daycare and my daughter stands up in her room and she yells, Dad, like she's excited to see me. My wife never does that when I come home. She (laughs) yells, Dad, and then she says, Guys! My dad's here, and then she continues on and says, guys, he's the best dad ever. I have the best dad. And I look at the class and say, that's right, tell your dads, right? <laughs> it's it. This blind faith that I am the best father. I'm the only one she's known at this point, her three years in. This blind faith is beautiful. That, that's why we celebrate Christmas in a different way with kids, and it's magical, and it's good, and it's beautiful. Faith is believing that there's something perfect and good and beautiful in this world that we can buy into. But here's the deal. Faith without knowledge is naive and dangerous. So if my daughter grows up, and she gets to know me more, and she gets to know my parenting ability, if she grows up and she's still 25, and she still thinks I am the best version of a male there is, I fear for her husband, you know? She'll learn as she gets older that I'm doing the best I can, but I'm also saving money for her counseling because I'm messing her up as much as I'm trying to, to grow her up, you know? Faith without knowledge is naive. And so as, as followers of Jesus, Paul says, hey, I'm going to grow your faith. This belief that God is bigger and better and creating, I'm going to grow your faith. But it's not just about growing your faith. We don't just grow faith. We grow the knowledge of the truth. And, and we say it at CBC, discipleship is knowing yourself that you need God, knowing God and making him known. This idea of knowing God removes the naivete from faith and gives it depth. Because the more we understand the world around us and the God that created it, the more we see our place in that world. I, I think this is done in a couple different ways. So, so one, it's not just like take another Sunday school Bible course. I think the more you get to know the world around you, the more you have an appreciation for the God that created it. One of my favorite things to study is astronomy. And um, I love looking at the stars and, and looking at the world around me. And one of my favorite facts, outside of like the fact that you guys know that the universe is still expanding. That's just really fantastic in a lot of ways to show me that creation is still going somewhere. It's not, it's not, it's not um, static, but it's moving towards something, and that's what the Bible would say too, that it's moving towards redemption and reconciliation. One of my favorite things to, to, to think through is that when you look at stars, you know you're literally seeing the past. 
Like when you look at stars, there's a star that's about 25 light years away. When you see the light that finally gets to us, that light started 25 years ago. There's, I forget the name of it, there's one star in Orion's belt that's like 600 and some odd light years away. So when we're seeing the light from that star, you're literally seeing light that was around like 600 and some odd years ago. And as I learn that and see that, what that does is it puts me in my place universally and I understand and recognize and realize in a culture of me that this world isn't about me. It, it makes me rehash and understand that God is way bigger and way more worthy of praise than anything I do on a Sunday through Sunday, you know? This beautiful reminder, as I get to know the world around me, as my faith leads into an understanding of the world around me, that it gives me a greater appreciation for the God that I follow. This is what change looks like. It begins with the beauty of faith, and then that supplements it with this beautiful uh, pressing into what we believe in in the first place. But also, as we get to know God, we get to know how good God is. This is why we believe in grace at Crossroads Bible Church. The more you understand grace, the more you fall in love with Jesus. And it doesn't end. Like the idea that I can define grace as good, but the more I really understand my depravity and understand God's love for me in the midst of my rebellion, the more I appreciate the sacrifice of Jesus. And that motivates lasting change. And so there's this twofold system of how do, how do, we, how do we express our faith in grown up ways? We know the world around us because it puts us in perspective and then we know God in the grace that he gives. So we study the scriptures together and we walk through Titus in, in eight weeks when you probably could do it in three weeks and we do these things together because we know that it's good for us because this is what change looks like. He's here to further the faith of the people in Crete through Titus and to further the knowledge of God that they had together. I love what one author says. He says, preaching is proclamation, God's word revealed in Jesus, but only when it gets embedded in conversation in a listening ear and a responding tongue does it become gospel. So if, if faith without knowledge is naive, faith in knowledge without godliness is dead. It's of no actual consequence or value. Because you can study something all day long, but until you put it in practice, it doesn't become real to us. I love this week, I was talking with Andy, our worship guy, who's out because this thing happened. I think we got a picture. And there it is, right? Um, so no matter what, this sermon was good because this happened, right? I mean, like, oh, it's so great. Yeah, that's why I do this. Um, this is Milo Harvey, everybody. He was born last Sunday. He's doing really well. I was talking to Andy this week and Jamie this week. And Andy shot me a text two days ago. And he said, quote, I had forgotten how absolutely necessary caffeine is. <laughs> so I think this is interesting because Andy knew full well what this process was. We just had our second kid four months ago. And much like us, we made a move uh, with the second kid and we're renovating a house. Like he's renovating a house. He, he literally got the playbook for how this was going to go. He saw me every week and knew exactly how tired I was and what it looked like. He knew exactly everything about what was going to happen. No surprises. But until he matched his knowledge with living it out, it didn't become real to him. He knows now the necessity of caffeine. I love this quote, you will, never know, you will only know as much of God as you're willing to put into practice. So Paul, when he's talking through the ideals of transformation, he's saying literally this trifecta is what actually transform you. If you want change, here's the elements needed. <laughs> you can't lose your faith, I want to grow that in you. 
You gotta keep understanding and knowing God because there's no end to that because you're not bigger than God is. And finally, none of those things matter if you don't live it out because that's when it gets real. That's when we see the change all around us, when we appreciate it, when we long for it, when we start living it out in a way that furthers the two things that we did before, our faith and our knowledge. One writer said it like this. He said, we're challenged these days, but not changed, convicted, but not converted. We hear, but, not, uh, but do not, and thereby we deceive ourselves. So Paul begins. He says, Titus. I am a slave. I'm dependent on God to change me because I am not in and of myself the gospel. And then he says, and here's what that looks like. The point of this, the point of this introduction is to further, the point of this letter is to further your faith and your knowledge and your godliness. This is what transformation looks like. And then he goes on and he says, in hope of eternal life. So he's saying, this is how we change. And, and then he's saying, this is why we change. Because changing for changing's sake is fine, but fleeting. He's going to ground our idea of transformation in something bigger than us, in hope of eternal life. That word in there is probably better translated resting on the hope of eternal life. And when we talk about hope, I love this definition of hope by a pastor that I follow. He says, hope is the expectation of coming good based on the purposes and promises of God. Hope is the expectation of coming good based on the purposes and promises of God. So he's saying, we're going to change, and we're going to do it because we know that this change is just a foretaste of what's to come because of God's purposes and his promises that are good. So he says, our ability to be transformed rests in the promise of God that this change that we're seeing isn't for in vain. This change that we're seeing is something that has eternal weight behind it. This transformation that we fight for, that we long for, that we live for, this transformation that we're called into as followers of Jesus is the promise of God that continues in perpetuity throughout all eternity. It gives it something that lasts and something that's good. And so he's meeting Titus in this letter and he's talking through, hey, this is how we bring about change and, and, and we do it because there's a bigger beauty out there that this points to in the first place. It rests on the idea of God's good purposes and promises and the expectation that that's leading us somewhere better in hope of eternal life. Not just like one day you get your pass into heaven, but one day there's a better version of the life that we live here and now. That's what eternal life means. And so he's writing about the idea and the power of transformation and why, because it gives us a picture into the beauty of God forever and ever and ever. And then he says, in case we needed more, this hope that we have that, that rests on the transformation that we strive for, that brings about hope, the goodness, and the promises and purposes of God is there because of the character of God. So it says, in a God, from a God who does not lie, but promised before time began. We're going to get into this more in two weeks, but we talked about it for a second. The, the Christian culture really was just a bunch of liars, and so in this text, this phrase stood out the most to a people that needed to be transformed. This phrase stood out incredibly well in a culture that didn't just see lying as something wrong, but saw lying as something to literally celebrate. They thought it was an okay part of their society. And just like I believe we think change is something we want to strive for, but don't actually want to strive for, I think honesty kind of falls into the same category a little bit. You know what truth of today is that the person sitting on your left, they're a liar. The person sitting on your right, they're a liar. 
The person sitting in your seat, super honest, right? <laughs> Kidding. The person on this pe- platform, he just lied to you. I mean, I'm just saying. <laughs> I mean, the idea that we have to get behind is, is that we are lied to more often than we want to realize. One of my favorite, uh, we talked about it in sermons on, on control and what we think we can control, but like we're lied to all the time. One of my favorite stats is in 2004, the city of New York did a study, and I love New York, used to go there a lot, and, and you go to these intersections and you push the button that says walk, and the city actually came out and said that like 90% of those buttons don't actually do anything at all. They lie to you, because they can't for a lot of reasons now in modern technology, they deal with walking in, in different ways with the traffic, and they said it just costs too much money to change them, so we're not going to, so keep pushing the buttons, you know? But, but more than that, there's a, a TED Talk and a woman who wrote a book called Lie Spotting named Pamela Mayer. And she said that we're lied to anywhere between, between 10 and 200 times a day. We lie to ourselves on an average of one to two times in the same day. And she said strangers on the study, she quotes from MIT, strangers lied three times in the first 10 minutes of meeting one another. Right? If you're new, I'd love to get to know you at the welcome desk. I'm kidding, right? <laughs> right after this. No, I, I think it's fascinating. She, she talks through a study on how we're lied to more often than we realize. And, and here's the deal as a culture. I think we're okay with some lies and not with others. I think we're okay, in essence, with lying. We, we, we want to say we're against lying, but then we covertly cover it up in some cases. For example, my daughter has really been to the movie Pocahontas lately. I don't know how she found it. From like 1990, I don't know, but way back in the day. And that whole movie that we watch is just a lie, you know? It's this love story and, and love went. If you study the real version of Pocahontas, it, it was really pretty gritty, you know? But we celebrate it and we make movies about it. And we say it's not true, but that's okay. And I say that just to, for us to understand that, that, that we're okay with certain levels of lie as long as we don't think they do much harm. But also, lying's easier than truth. In 2018, there was a study by MIT and it said that they stated 126,000 rumors and false stories spread on Twitter over 11 years and found that the lies traveled faster and reached more people than the truth. They said that their findings said that false news stories were 70% more likely to be retweeted than true stories. It took true stories six times longer to reach 1,500 people, and true stories rarely shared beyond 1,000 people, but the most popular false news or lies could reach up to 100,000 people. We are a culture that buys in to the goodness of lies, even though we don't want to agree with it. So when Paul says that the hope we have, the hope we have in the transformation that Jesus brings because it's going to happen for eternity is rooted in a God who does not ever lie. It was a foreign concept to them, but I think it's almost as foreign to us now that you can trust it because God has never, not once, not ever. And there are verses on verses on verses lied in the Old Testament. God has never, ever, and will never lie. How can you trust the transformation God brings that it's for our good for all time? Because God doesn't lie, period. And then he goes on to say, not only does God not lie, it says he, he's promised this eternality, this eternal transformation before time began. One of my favorite concepts in studying the person of God, is that God does not react, but he responds with wisdom. It gives me security to know that God saw COVID coming. It gives me security to know that God saw fill in the blank coming. It gives me security to know that when God created the world, he created a plan for redemption with it. I had a prof in seminary, and it's the first time I heard this, and it was really fascinating. He said, the omniscience of God 
is more than just the all-knowingness of God. It is more than just God knowing all things that you're going to do. God knowing that you're going to go, where you're going to eat today, and what you're going to get, and who you're going to marry, and how many kids you're going to have. And he said the omniscience of God is deeper than that. It's also knowing what you choose not to do and what would have happened should you have chosen to do that. You know, That's really fascinating. And so then that parlays into, so when God created, he knew that the world would fall. He knew that there would be heartbreak and hurt. He knew all these things, but he chose to create the world knowing full well that his plan of redemption was the best good for his glory and for love. And so what it does is it gives me confidence, even though sometimes the world seems chaotic. What it does is it allows me to recognize and realize in a world that, that everything's challenged in questions that our God is still confidently sits on the throne, reigning and ruling. What it does is it allows me to have confidence in the transformation that he provides me, knowing full well that this is where this thing ends, is in his eternal purposes. What it does is remind me that God's promises are grounded in his eternal purposes and not my circumstances. That's huge. If I'm going to be like somebody, if I'm going to walk in the ways of Jesus, I need to know that they're lasting and they don't fluctuate. And how can we trust it? Because God is lasting and doesn't fluctuate. I need to know that God is worth following and that his goodness never wanes. And that's what the writer says, what Paul says. This is what transformation is. And, and beyond that, this is why we can trust it, because God is trustworthy. If you need more than just a practical application, this is why. All the time that God's goodness and his eternality and the transformation he brings goes beyond any circumstance that we have. He continues in verse three, but now in his own time, he has made this message evident through the preaching I was entrusted according to the command of God our Savior. So Paul's saying, hey, this is what change looks like. He's saying this is what change is dependent upon. This transformation is dependent upon the eternality of God and his goodness. And he says, and this is why we changed in the first place. Because he's finally made his message of Jesus known. And my job is to tell everybody about it. <laughs> that word preaching there, my favorite definition of preaching is not like, hey, I heard a good sermon this morning. My favorite definition of preaching is the influence or the weight of influence over time. So it's the idea that we're going to get up here every Sunday and you're going to hear somebody speak to you. And I think the best idea of preaching, I think what Paul gets at here, it's not just the one sermon I give, it's all the letters I write. It's all the ways I live. He says, my job is to show the beauty and goodness of God through transformation to all the people I was entrusted to give this to. The weight of influence over time. That's how he preached to Titus as they lived together day in and day out. And he saw the change in Titus, and Titus saw the change in him that showed the goodness of God. And so what, what we see, and I think why he starts the letter with this theme of transformation, why, why he starts the letter by saying, Titus, look, my name is Paul, and he, and he takes 47 words to get to who this is for, is because he's reminding him in a culture that needed change, where change was hard, that change is worth it. And what he does in the rest of the letter is he says, this is how the gospel transforms you. This is how it transforms your churches. Chapter two, this is how it transforms your family. Chapter three, this is how transformed people transform their societies and communities and worlds. Because the gospel's about transformation as we have faith, as we know, as we live it out, as we believe in the something better that lasts forever. He says, my job to tell you that. So what we see is, is the place of transformation and the power that he wanted to pass on to Titus, which is transform lives, testify to God's truthfulness and the hope that he offers, period. Why change? Why change? Because transform lives are the best way to tell people that God didn't lie. 
Transformed lives are the best way to tell people that God's better. Transformed lives are the best way to tell people that God is good. Transformed lives are the best way to tell people that we have hope in something that's bigger and better than what we normally hope in. Transformed lives testify to God's truthfulness and the hope he has to offer us. So Paul starts this book by saying, be transformed. You're going to need it because Crete's a hard place. And you need to be reminded of why we do what we do. And, and so we do this in a lot of different ways at, at CBC, but I think as we go through this book, what, one of the best things we can do, and maybe a question we don't ask as much as we should, is just simply, how is God changing you? How is God changing you? There's a Bible study method I like called the Swedish method. It's, it's a really easy way to study the scriptures, meaning you don't need a lot of pre- preparation for it. You just go through and you read a passage and you ask five questions. You know, what stood out to me? What confused me? Where do I see Jesus in this text? Um, what is God teaching me today? And then the last question it asks you to ask is, who needs to hear what God has told me, taught me, changed in me today? I love that. Because the testimony of transformation tells people that God's good, that he's true, and that we can believe in his hope. And that's really what this book is all about. That's what we're going to get into over the next eight, eight weeks. I think that's what God calls us to do as we live out the truth of the gospel every single day. Because change is slow, you know? You're going to go back to your high school reunion when you're 20 years out like me and realize that it's been 20 years, not 20 days, (laughs) you know? I'm a different person because it's been a really, really long time. And part of why we gather on Sunday mornings, and I think the biggest purpose for it, is change is slow and incremental and hard. It's worth it. But we get to come together and tell the stories of how God is changing us every single day. We get to say, I am here and God is taking me here. We get to testify to the truthfulness of God, whether you study this book or not, by simply saying, look what God is doing right here and right now, and this is a promise for what's to come. It's beautiful and better. I love the book of Titus. It's all about the hope we have that God is active in our world. That's why today we're going to end with communion. And what communion is, it's a small reminder when we gather that God's grace is good for us. That that, that when Jesus died, it's for a picture and a promise of something better. That there is a better way to live that God is changing us into, as he calls us, through the grace of God, into looking more like Jesus who died for us. And so Jesus sat with his disciples on the night that he went to the cross. And he, he took a cup of wine. And he said to his disciples, this is my blood. And he took bread and he said, this is my body. And so today as we take communion, we remember that God's in the business of changing us because Jesus died for us. So if you would take the wafer, Jesus held it up and he said, this is my body that's broken for you. Every time you eat this, remember what I did for you so that you could look more like me. And then he took the cup and he said, this is my blood that is shed for you. Every time you drink this, remember that I'm in the business of changing your your world. Remember the promises that I give you that are good and that will continue. And remember that it's based on my character and my eternal purposes, not your circumstance. For people that follow Jesus and believe in change.
come here on Sunday mornings or watch online sometime this week and we remember the little ways that God is doing that as we read scripture, as we talk about our stories, as we take communion because we know that transformed lives tell the greater story of the goodness of our God. Let me pray. God, I'm thankful that you're changing us, that you're increasing our faith and knowledge and godliness so that people might see your goodness. As we go through Titus over the next eight weeks, may you show us how we've been changed and may you give us the strength to keep changing. May you show us your goodness in the past. Might that get us excited about your goodness in the future. May we be a church that as people see the change that's happening, people see the goodness of God. Because you've been so gracious. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.